0: Philippians chapter 1. We have been looking at weeks before verses 12 through 26, which make up this next section of the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. And so we'll read that this morning verses 12 through 26. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness "...as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor." Yet what I shall choose I want not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance And joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. And the Lord will bless the reading of his word. So let's have a word of prayer. My Father, we come to thee doing what the early church did long ago reading the Word and giving the sense of it. And we would pray, Lord, that let's pour out Thy Spirit, Spirit of Pentecost, and Lord, that you would draw us in to see something of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we feed on Him this morning. This is our prayer. Bless every ear for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said in the beginning, we have been looking at verses 12 through 26, which make up the second part of Philippians. Well, I guess it would be the third part of Philippians, uh, chapter 1. And in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, we get into the actual body. So we skip past the introduction, which is made up of the salutation. And then you have Paul's thanksgiving and then his prayer. So then you come to this section. Excuse me, that would be the fourth, not the third, the fourth part so far of the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. And verses 12 through 26 is now the main body of this letter. And what he's communicating through verses 12 through 26 is that although he's in prison and he's suffering in it's really hard he's not trying to sugarcoat it he's not trying to make it seem like it's something different he's not pretending that things are really fine when they're not he says look i'm in prison it's hard but i'm experiencing joy and he's communicating this to the philippians because the philippians were worried about the apostle paul well what condition is he in He must be down. He must be not only suffering physically and emotionally, but he must be so discouraged and so distraught. So the Apostle Paul writes and says, in essence, in verses 12 through 26, no, I'm rejoicing. I'm experiencing joy. We looked at verses 12 through 14 where the Apostle Paul speaks about the affliction he was in. He was suffering physical affliction. He was chained, if you remember, to one of the Praetorian guard. And yet he says, I'm rejoicing. Why? Because the gospel is being furthered. And we learn from that that it is through trials and through affliction that God is pleased to further His gospel in His church. That's always been the case. And then we looked at verses 15 through 18. And we saw that the Apostle Paul was suffering in a different way. He was being opposed by other preachers in Rome. Amazingly so. After He had already been suffering in prison. They wanted to add affliction to his bonds. And so they preached in such a way as to preach against the Apostle Paul. But then Paul rejoiced again. And he said, I rejoice. Why? Because Jesus is being preached. We learned there that a fundamental source of joy is the magnifying of Jesus anywhere. That's a fundamental source of joy for the believer. If Christ is magnified anywhere, that is to bring joy to our souls. I remember reading one time that Jonathan Edwards and him saying that when he would hear that Christ was exalted on the mission field or in in anything, in a sermon, he said his heart would just be filled with joy. And that was the Apostle Paul. I'm rejoicing because Jesus is being preached. But now, the Apostle turns his mind from his position in prison to his trial that's coming up. You remember the Apostle Paul is in prison awaiting trial. He's going to stand before the Roman tribunal. And he's going to stand before them for the gospel's sake. The reason why he's under house arrest is because of the gospel. That's why he's there. And so he's going to stand before the Romans and give a defense of the gospel. And so now the Apostle Paul turns their attention to this, this trial that's coming And he doesn't know what's going to happen at this trial. He doesn't know if he's going to live or he's going to die. Which is why he says in verse 20, In my body, whether it be by life or by death. Because Paul does not know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. He doesn't know. But despite whether he lives or dies, he says he will rejoice. At the end of verse 18 he says, and I therein do rejoice. That's in Christ being preached. And then, yea, and will rejoice. And that will rejoice is covering all that's coming after that text. He's saying, I will continue to rejoice in looking towards my trial. And then he explains why he has such joy, as we'll look at in the message this morning. But whether Paul lives or whether Paul dies before the trial, he says, I will Rejoice. And it's amazing, Paul was able to rejoice in life and death. One man said, Paul didn't face life merely with stoic courage or death with resignation, but he faced both with faith and hope. Now this is significant because there are some people who don't want to live. And there are some people who don't want to die? Some people are frightened of death. They're scared to die. And their greatest fear is death. They try to put it out of their minds, trying to think about it. Even believers can have a fear of death. Then there are some people who don't want to live because their life is so difficult. There are things that are very, very hard in life and they really would rather not go on living. And the amazing thing about Paul is, is that Paul says, I rejoice whether I die or I live. I am willing to live or die if it's what Jesus wants. Wherever Christ sends me, Life or death, I rejoice. But Paul, look at your life. Your life is in a prison. Your life is being opposed by people. Your life is being chained up. What kind of life is that? It's the life that my Jesus gave me. And I want Him to be glorified. But you could die, Paul. You could have your head chopped off, and it's true that one day the axe in Rome glittered from the sun and it came down swiftly on the neck of the Apostle Paul and he gave his life for his Savior. But he says, whether I die or I live, I rejoice. And so Christian, do you struggle with death? Do you struggle with life? This passage gives us why we should go on living with joy, and why, if we die, we should face death with joy. Now, this morning, I'm going to draw our attention to dying with joy, and the next Lord's Day to living with joy. And so, I want to draw your attention to a little phrase, which would be the title of the message, and it is this, which we find in verse 21: to die is gain. To die is gain. The blunt reality of life is that every single person will die. One person wrote, in the home or in the hospital, painfully or peacefully, quickly or slowly, by disease or by violence, with or without warning, one day somebody somewhere will pronounce me dead. There is not a human being here under the sound of my voice that will not one day be buried somewhere with a tombstone with our name. Our life is a little blip and then it's over. Millions and billions have passed before us and they've all died and so will we. It's coming. We cannot miss it. We cannot avoid it. We will die. Everyone. Now the question though is how do you face death? How do you look death in the face and triumphantly say, I rejoice? How do you look death in the face and say, death is gain? Now, this is only for believers. Nobody can say death is gain. It does not know Christ. Death is not a gain for them, unfortunately. But there are believers that still struggle with death. And so, I want us to think about this morning, to die is gain. In the first place, to die is gain because... It is an opportunity to magnify Christ. To die is gain because it is an opportunity to magnify Christ. Look with me at verse 20. The Apostle Paul says, According to my earnest expectation and my hope. Well, what is this earnest expectation and hope? What is this thing that he's looking forward to at his trial? What is he earnestly expecting and hoping for? Well, we really find that in the end of verse 20 when he says, So now also Christ shall be magnified. Christ shall be magnified. Now, Paul is saying that whether I live or I die, my number one goal, my great end is that Jesus Christ might be magnified. So my comfort is not preeminent. The way I die, if it's painful, that's secondary. Even his life, how he lives, it's secondary. What is number one importance for the Apostle Paul is that in the way that I die, Jesus Christ is magnified. And I don't know if you've ever considered that at the hour of death, At the hour of your dying, when you breathe your last breath, the way in which you die can bring tremendous glory to Jesus. Beyond what you have done in much of your life, dying well can magnify, does magnify Jesus. But what is it to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ? The word translated magnified here is an interesting word. Part of the Greek word has the word mega. It's an actual Greek term, mega. And so it means to make great. To magnify means to make great. Now how are we to understand this? Is Jesus Christ lacking in luster? So we need to add some greatness to Him. We need to help Him become more great. I don't think that can work. Is it something to where Christ is, is little in size, and so we need to, by the way we die, make Him bigger? Oh, well, that can't work. He's infinite, and He's perfect. So what does it mean to make Him great? Well, it would be different from the idea of a magnifying glass. It would be more like a telescope. If you take a magnifying glass and you put it over something small, you make something small appear large. But a telescope takes something that is huge and allows it to be seen with the naked eye. Not that we are taking Christ that is huge and making Him small, but what Paul is saying is that through my life, the way I live and die, but specifically here, if I die at this trial, the way I die, I want my death, the way I die, to be like a lens that reflects And shows Jesus' greatness. And what is it to show His greatness? It is to let Christ be seen for who He is. You cannot add anything to His greatness. You cannot exaggerate Him. You cannot adorn Him. He is great intrinsically. He is great in and of Himself. And so to make Him appear great is merely to let Christ be seen. That's what The apostle is saying, to let Christ be seen. And so if Paul dies in a dishonorable way, he is giving a false representation of Jesus. If he dies in a way that does not bring honor to God, he is falsely representing Christ. He is giving a picture of a false Christ. A Christ who is not better than death. Or the things of earth, a Christ who is not worthy of glory. And so Christ deserves our magnification because he is, in and of himself, great. But Paul doesn't just leave us with this idea of magnifying Christ, he then makes it very, very practical and he explains how exactly he wants to die. How does Paul want to die? Well, or even perhaps his trial. Really, they're grouped together here. When he talks about magnifying Christ, he doesn't know if he's going to die or live. So he's saying, whether I live or die, I want this to be the way in which I live or die. So the same can be said about life or death. The Apostle Paul says that in nothing, in verse 20, I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, so now also Christ shall be magnified. So Paul has two great desires. As I stand before the trial, Paul could say, and I'm threatened with death if they actually kill me, I want the trial and everything all the way up to the moment of death to be without shame and with boldness. Without shame and with boldness. Now, the Apostle Paul was under a tremendous amount of pressure at this point to soften his doctrine of the gospel, to recant what he had said. And it reminds me of a man named Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury, if I remember correctly. And he was a man during the English Reformation. He actually recanted the doctrines of the Protestant Reformation because he was under threat of death. And he signed papers with his hand, recanting it. Later on, he came back and he unrecanted his recantation, or I don't know how you'd say that. He recanted his recantation. And he actually went to his death, and before he died, he stuck the hand that he signed his recantation with in the fire first to say how much he loved the Lord Jesus and held to the doctrines of the Reformation but a great man like Cranmer folded under pressure. And as Christians come to their time of death, sometimes there is pressure. It, there could be pressure to, pressure to die in a way that would not glorify him. And Christians will fold. And Paul says, I want to die in a way that does not bring any shame to my Savior. I don't want to die, Paul. Look, Paul doesn't want to die like a backsliding Christian. Paul doesn't di- want to die in that way. Paul doesn't want to die after having fallen into sin and being drunk and walking down the street and, and, and dying because he's drunk so much alcohol that he's choked on his own, his own saliva or something like that. I know a man who has died that way. Paul doesn't want to die in a way that brings shame to his Savior. He doesn't want to die that way. He doesn't want to die in living in sin. Paul wants to die in a way that there's no shame brought to Jesus Christ. Paul understands, yeah, I've started off well, but I want to end well. You know how many preachers start off well and when they die, they have brought shame on the name of Christ? Paul doesn't want to die in shame. He wants to die with a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. But the way you die without shame is by living without shame. You can only die well if you live well. And then Paul says, I want to die with boldness. I don't want my last breath to be a fear, to to be me shrieking, ah, I'm facing hell. He doesn't want that to be his last breath where doubts fill his heart about where he's going. He doesn't want his last last breath to be, to be um, fear and trepidation because he has been living in sin and now he is dying and he's going to stand before Jesus. He wants to die with boldness. He wants to die holding the promises of God. He wants to die on that bed soaring out to meet with God with a smile on his face saying, Jesus has saved me. He has taken away my sin. He is mine and I am His. He wants to, on that day of His death, when the axe is raised up, He wants to be singing the Psalms and praising His Savior as the the Covenanters did when they died. The Scottish Covenanters, they would stand up and as they would die, they would say, Farewell, death. Welcome, Jesus. He wants to die in such a way wants to die well he wants to die in a way that brings glory to Jesus how will you die will the way you die bring shame to Jesus if you're continuing on the road you're on this is not Paul's desire and you can't rejoice in death if you die in shame But the Apostle Paul then explains something more. He, he shows us how someone is enabled to die this way. And I don't have time to go into this in great detail, but in verse 19 he says, For I know that this, this that's speaking of his imprisonment, shall turn to my salvation. Now the term salvation there is a very general term that could be speaking of rescue, deliverance, or even translated health. It is a general term that does not refer to salvation in the sense of being justified, being saved. He's simply speaking here of salvation in the sense of being helped, rescued by God so that He can have a good testimony before the Roman tribunal and even in His death. That's what salvation is referencing here. And He says, through your prayer, And the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is an amazing statement. You cannot die well except through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit. It's called the Spirit of Jesus Christ because it proceeds from Jesus Christ. And it bears the same characteristics of Christ who is of the same essence. And because the Spirit forms in the church the fruit which is of the same nature as Christ Himself, it forms holiness, faith, love, mercy, patience, all those things that are the same kind of nature or I should say, attributes of Christ. Not nature. Attributes of Christ. And so this, this is the Spirit of Christ. So how do we, how is Christ seen in His people? It is by the Spirit of Christ cultivating in them the image of Christ. And so the Spirit of Christ works in the church so that they bear more and more the image of Christ without the supply of the Spirit and it's very interesting here the word supply it's not just saying the help of the Spirit it's talking about the Spirit continually being given it's like, it's like um, in the Pilgrim's Progress you have a, a picture of oil being poured on a fire and then water being poured on the fire and the picture there is of the fact that our salvation can never go out, so to speak, and never be lost. Because even though the devil pours water, temptation, doubt, etc., the Lord is pouring oil that keeps the fire burning. And it's like the Holy Spirit is being continually poured out and supplied to the church, supplied to His people. And so we must have the supply of the Spirit We have the Spirit, but we must have the constant supply of the Spirit's power, the Spirit's grace, the Spirit's working in us to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, to uphold us in our trials, to strengthen us and and work in us faith and patience and all the other fruit of the Spirit, which are really the fruit which which are the attributes of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit, which is amazing because it tells us that in the church, the means whereby which God is pleased to supply His Spirit is through answering the prayers of His people. That's amazing. This exalts prayer in our minds. So everybody in this congregation needs the supply of the Spirit of God. They need the Spirit of God to be supplied to them in great measure so that we can all walk throughout the week free from sin, so that we can be upheld in our trials and comforted and strengthened even to the hour of death. And Paul says, through your prayers and the supply, God is pleased to supply the Spirit in answer to believing prayer, the prayer of His people. And so you can see that it is incumbent upon the church to be in prayer for one another. It is as we pray for one another that God is pleased to supply the Spirit. And if, if the Apostle Paul needed the Spirit to be supplied to him, how much more are we? If the Apostle Paul needed the prayers of the Philippians, how much more we? And Paul's confidence that this will happen, his confidence that he will magnify Jesus in his trial, is based on his confidence, according to this text, that the Philippians will be praying. And that is an amazing thing. It exalts prayer. Prayer is a powerful thing. We must be praying for one another. So keep in mind that we speak about dying in a way that brings glory to God and brings glory to Christ, but we can't do that in our own strength. We need the Spirit to be supplied to us. We need to be in communion with our God. That's why I said we need to live well. And it's also important that we have the people of God lifting us up in prayer. It goes to show you also the, the foolishness of, of being a maverick Christian who does not want to join himself to anybody, and says they don't need to go to church and they don't need really the prayers of, his, of God's people but for the apostle Paul the church is a body it's a whole it's an organic whole you cannot live apart from the rest of the body and be healthy we need prayers of God's people Well, Paul is longing to die in such a way that he does not bring shame. And so when the Apostle Paul thinks about death, he's saying to himself, Death and to us is one opportunity that I have, perhaps one of the greatest, to magnify my Jesus. Do you look at your death that way as a final battle cry, as a final hallelujah, as a final shout of victory? As one final breath leaves your lips, it is one final action that you can do to bring glory to Jesus. And that's why Paul rejoiced. Paul saying, if I die, I'm ready to die because I want to bring glory to my Savior. And I'm sure you know people who have died who are Christians. And as they died, they magnified Christ. They made him look great. And that should be our desire. Well, the second thing is Paul also says to die is gain because it frees us from the flesh. In verses 22 and 24, the Apostle Paul refers to life as being in the sphere of the flesh. He calls it in verse 22, but if I live... In the flesh. Verse 24. Nevertheless to abide in the flesh. So life is referred to as being in the flesh. And when he uses this term, in the flesh, or this phrase, he's describing life on earth in a fallen world in contrast to what existence will be like in glory. It is in the sphere and the realm of the flesh the flesh. And really, if we, I think the best comparison of life in the flesh and life in glory, the new heavens and new earth, is what we find in the book of Revelation 21 and verse 4, where John describes what it would be like, and he writes, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, or the former things are passed away. That's the difference between life in the flesh and life in glory. There is, as John says, no more, etc., etc., etc. So there is a negative description here of what it will not be like there, which helps us to understand the difference between our life in the flesh and life in glory. So the first thing John says is there will be no more death. No more death. There was death in the original creation, excuse me, no death in the original creation until after the fall. Death is a result of sin. We know that because of the Apostle Paul's um, statement in Romans 5 verse 12, as by one man sin entered into the world. So, sin came by Adam. And then he says, and death by sin so death came as a result of sin and so death passed upon all men for all have sinned and death will only be found where there is sin so everybody dying tells us that everybody is sinning death cannot be found where there is no sin sin is the wages excuse me death is the wages of sin The punishment of sin is a death, eternally, spiritually, and physically. But there will be no more death, John says. And the Apostle Paul knows that once he dies, there will be no more death, because he will no longer be in the flesh. There will be no more death. Well, how can there be no more death? I'm reminded of a verse in Hebrews, or two verses in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He, that's Christ, also Himself likewise, took part of the same, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So human beings left to themselves are subject to bondage. They're in bondage to the devil because of their sin which makes them in bondage to death and the devil has been given the power over death. So because they're sinners, death is their wage. And because death is their wage and the devil has been given the power of death, they are in bondage. They're not only in bondage to death, to the devil, they're in bondage to the fear of death. All their lifetime. The fear of dying. But the Bible says that someone came and through death, he destroyed him that had the power of death. It reminds me of a book written by John Owen, The Death of Death in the death of Christ. It was through dying that dying became dead. It's through the death of Jesus that He overcomes death. For where no sin is, there can be no death. The sting of death The strength of death, the power of death, is sin. But someone who's a believer can say, there is now no more sting to my death, and there is no more victory to the grave. Why? Because death no longer has a hold over somebody who has no guilt for sin. If the guilt for your and my sin was placed on Christ, and He bore that guilt and did away with it, death no longer has a grip. Which is why He rose up from the grave victorious. Why did He rise up from the grave? Why did He break the bands of death? Because Jesus Christ, by His death, appeased the wrath of God, appeased the Father's law wrath. A broken law incited His wrath. And the just judgment of a broken law was poured out upon the head of the Lamb of God. And by the just judgment of that law being poured out upon the Son, the demands of the law were met. And there was therefore no more guilt on the Son of God, which means that no more death could hold Him. So he rose up from the grave victorious over death, over hell, over the grave, and over the devil. Because he made an end of death through death. Because by death he made an end to sin. So Jesus Christ made an end of death by his death. And so the believer dies. But I want you to understand something. Death is not viewed by God for the believer in the same sense it is for a lost man. Death is a result of our sin and the sense that because we've sinned in Adam, our world has fallen and cursed and our bodies are dying. But death is not the result of our guilt because our guilt has been done away. Death is in many ways a covenant blessing because death frees us now from our life in the flesh. Instead of death being the door that ushers us into the fierce judgment of a terrible God, now death is the door that brings us into the very presence of Christ and frees us from the the difficulties of of the flesh all because of the work of Jesus. And so there will be no more death. Nobody will die again. There, nobody, will be, nobody will have to say their goodbyes. Nobody again in glory. But then also, no more sorrow or crying. Sorrow is a result of the fall. And when Adam and Eve sinned, I imagine the first tear may have trickled down the face of the first man and woman but ever since then, as they were given the curse upon the earth, and under the sweat of their brow, they, they labored, and woman was, women were told that they would have to, in pain and labor and travail, bring forth children. How many tears have come? Just think of the tears. Think of the tears that have been shed over wars, battles, disease that have ravaged the earth and swept Millions into eternity. Think of the tears of broken hearts, broken marriages, broken homes, tears shed over wayward sons and daughters, tears shed over regrets, tears shed over sin, tears shed for a thousand things. Think of the tears that have been shed. And is it not amazing that in this passage in Revelation 21, the Bible says, there will be no more sorrow. And no more tears. It says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. God Himself, hear the tenderness of this. God Himself will personally wipe away all the tears from the eyes of His children. All the tears that you've shed when you have wept until you could weep no more because of your heart being so broken one day he will wipe your tears away tears are banished from heaven you will never see a tear in glory there will be no more tears whatever has caused you sorrow in this earth it will be wiped away Whatever hard times you've gone through, whatever difficulties you've faced, it will be wiped away. How can He wipe away our tears? It's because His, his, his tender love is so great towards us. That's a lot of tears to wipe away. But what do the handwriters say? That if you wrote the love of God above, the scroll could not contain the whole, if you drained the ocean dry, it wouldn't even be enough for the ink to speak of his love. And so the tears of millions and billions and trillions of his people that could fill worlds, he wipes away with one stroke of his omnipotent hand. He will wipe them away one day it will all be well and then there will be no more pain whatever physical pain you experience the pain of body pain of perhaps some disease that you might be struggling with or some something wrong with your body something wrong with you that you you can't change that's hard there'll be no more pain on that day. Any child of God that has any kind of disability, I love to think about the wonderful thought that on the day when we see Jesus, they will be perfectly whole. It's amazing. And I have thought about how that there are some that take care of different disabled children and they pour themselves and they never hear thank you because they can't. But there will come a day when that person will be whole and perfect and will say thank you. There will be no more pain. Whatever pain you experience emotionally, physically, there will be no more pain. There will be no more pain from temptation. There will be no more pain from the feeling of sin pulling you away from Jesus no more temptation, no more pain. All will be well. Helen Keller wrote, Death is no more passing from one room into another, but there's a difference for me, you know, because in that other room I shall be able to see. And Helen Keller said, The first face that I will see will be the face of my Savior. Death is gain because it frees us from the flesh. And finally, death is gain because it brings us to Christ. The Apostle Paul, perhaps at the height of his glorying in death, says in verse 23, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart. Paul says, I actually would rather depart. Why, Paul? To be with Christ. Which is far better. Far Better. Oh, you've lost a loved one. It is far better. Far better where they are. To want them back here, they would never come with you. It is far better where they are. Because it brings them to Christ. To Christ. Look at those words. To be with Christ. You know, you hear songs sung about the pearly gates, about the mansions and glory, about the streets of gold, about all the things that we'll have. It's nothing, it's Jesus. Jesus is the heaven of heavens. You can hear him saying to his church as sometimes we sing those things and think about all those different things, but I will be there, but I will be there. I will be there in the fullness of my glory waiting for you to wrap my, my arms of love around you as I never, never could have before because now there is, there is nothing separating me. There is no sin. There is no flesh. And the fullness of my love will cover you in an ocean of love. I will wash over you with joy and and glorying over you. You are my treasure. I long for that day. Jesus is waiting in glory. Come to me. I want to be in this world of love. One of the passages in Revelation says, we will walk with Him in white. We will walk with Him in white. Oh, there's nothing like it. What a friend we have in Jesus. Now we know him so, so um, how would I say it? We know him so slightly. Like hearing an echo from a world a billion miles away. We know something of his glory and beauty and love and wonder. But one day, we will see him face to face. And it will be an amazing day. You know, if you put a child of God in the world and you said, this is heaven to you, and you gave him streets of gold, and you gave him mansions, and you gave him pearls, and you gave him all the money he could want, and you gave him, say, 10,000 worlds filled with all of the... Things you could ever desire. And he said, this is heaven. The child of God, the true child of God, would sit on the ground with his head in his hands and say, oh, I want Jesus. I want Jesus. Heaven is hell to me without Jesus. I want Jesus. He would sit there and say, I want Jesus. Bring me Jesus. Jesus. I want the one who bore my shame. I want the one who bore my guilt. I want the one who is wounded. I want the one who is crowned. I want the one who is stripped naked for me. I want the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I want Jesus. Bring me Jesus. Take all this from me. Take the gold. Take the pearls. Take the mansions. Take it from me. I don't want it. I want Jesus. I want the one who guided me in my life. I want the one who who was near to me when I was broken. I want the one who met me in hospital rooms. I want the one who comforted me. I want the one who is my shepherd. I want the one who is my friend. I want Jesus. Bring me Jesus. Bring me Jesus. Let me just kneel at His pierced feet and wash His feet with my tears. Let me just tell Him how much I love Him. Let me just glory in Him. Let me thank Him. Let me get one word of thanks I want Jesus. Can you imagine on that day when for the first time you really realize what it means to be a sinner? You really feel the depth of it. You really understand how holy God is. And then you really grasp the love of God as you see the Son of God still with the marks of His death before you. As you're blinded by His glory. As you fall back in the presence of His awesome majesty and you realize this was the one who was a babe in a manger for me. This was the one who was stripped naked for me. This is the one. You see, Jesus, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to take up all of our thinking, all of our occupation, all of our mind and heart and soul and heaven for eternity oh how lovely he must be can you imagine how wonderful he he must be to see him in the fullness of his glory and to never thirst and to never hunger and to never want anything more for all of eternity and that the wonderful thing is, is it's it's not because of the things he gives in the new heavens and the new earth it's because of him he satisfies our longing He satisfies our hunger. He is our peace. He is our joy. He is our love. And we will walk with Him in white. We will walk with Him. To be with Christ is far better. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And you see, if, if the Lamb is not a glory to us now, we will not be in Emmanuel's land. Because, now catch this, because Emmanuel's land is to behold the Lamb in glory. You could be given all of the riches of heaven, and your soul will never be satisfied. If the Lamb is not a glory to you now, you will never know heaven. Because heaven is the lamb in his glory. To die is gain. Let's face it with joy, with boldness and rejoicing. And whoever you've lost, imagine today where they are. Sam, with a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank Thee. We don't really know what to say to thank You. Or when this passing world is done, sunk young, glaring sun, Lord, then we'll know how much we owe. We bless Thee, Lord. Bless Thy people. May they know the presence of the Lord today wherever they go. Give them a blessed Lord's day. For Jesus' sake. Amen.